You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Welcome to Belaboured, episode 92. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. The 100th anniversary of the death of Joe Hill came last month, and to remember the man who coined the phrase, don't mourn, organize, we have a special show for you featuring Alexis Buss, editor of a new collection of Hill's letters, as well as readings of the letters and performances of his work. But first, the news. Donald Trump may be making headlines for all the horrific things that come out of his mouth, particularly around immigrants, but the workers at his hotels, some of them immigrants themselves, are organizing and winning. Workers at the Trump International Hotel in Las Vegas have voted to join the Culinary Workers Union Local 226 and the Bartenders Union Local 165, both of Unite Here. The vote came just days after workers, also most of them immigrants, at Trump's Toronto Hotel had ratified their first union contract. The Vegas workers have made Donald Trump's proclamations on the campaign trail somewhat of an issue, holding rallies and calling out his anti-immigrant statements. They have been joined at their rallies by presidential candidates hoping to win an endorsement as well as to challenge the Republican frontrunner. Maria Jaramillo, a housekeeper at the Trump Las Vegas Hotel, said, I came from Mexico many years ago and became an American citizen to have a better opportunity for me and my family. This country is a nation of immigrants, and we all work hard and deserve to be treated fairly. Meanwhile, as the presidential election continues to heat up and unions continue to haggle over their endorsement processes, the Working Families Party made the decision this week to endorse Senator Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary, a decision that was likely quite contentious as several of the unions that support the Working Families Party have already endorsed Hillary Clinton, including SEIU. Since the presidential primaries are shaping up to be debates over two types of populism, the right-wing anti-immigrant racist demagoguery of Trump on the one hand, and a competition for who can be the most pro-worker on the other, unions and worker groups are seen as important endorsements for the Dems. But the real question, as always, will be what labor gets for its time and money. The best way to stick it to Trump, after all, will still be helping his employees to organize. Seoul is on fire in Korea. Labor protests have racked the South Korean capital and an explosion of dissent from civil society on multiple fronts. While the militant labor movement has led demonstrations against rollbacks of core labor protections, other progressive groups are rallying in opposition to the proposed imposition of a national history curriculum for high schools, which critics say is revisionist and whitewashes the regime of the dictatorship of General Park Chung-hee, who, incidentally, is the father of the current president, Park Geun-hye, elected to a five-year term on a neoliberal conservative platform in 2013. Like many of her Western counterparts, Park Jr. is leading the charge to deregulate labor so that massive family-run conglomerates known as Chebol, once the mainstay of Korean industry, can more easily fire workers. This will allow for the fresh hiring of contingent workers or those without a stable labor contract. Uh, In turn, this undermines organized labor. Um, It also uh, tends to degrade wages and working conditions, and critics say it is pretty much in line with the broader right-wing agenda of the government, which has been relentlessly pushing free trade and privatization. According to Tim Shurek in The Nation, the law's primary aim is to increase the huge number of part-time irregular workers in Korean industry 
20% of the workforce, and that's one of the highest rates in the industrialized world, and allow public and private employers to make unilateral changes in working conditions without consulting unions. In response to this, a coalition calling itself People Power has joined the forces of left-leaning labor unions, the Korean uh, Confederation of Trade Unions, and the Peasant League. Both groups are opposed to free trade agreements between the United States and China. And it looks like in both South Korea and in the U.S., uh, party politics has been veering toward an ugly distortion of a shameful past of authoritarianism. Fortunately, the Korean labor movement is actually relatively militant and radical compared to that of the U.S., um, but uh, the police have been pretty aggressive in its effort to crush the protests, and the tensions will likely escalate as workers and progressive activists try to resist this ideological regression. This week, New York City Councilmember Brad Lander introduced the Freelance Isn't Free Act, something that is quite close to my heart and perhaps to that of many of you out there. The bill aims to provide stronger legal protections for freelancers stiffed out of paychecks, requiring a written contract for work over $200 that includes the amount of payment and, more importantly, a deadline for payment. As I and many others have experienced, often it is the months of chasing a check that can get to you, so the deadline part is key. Failure to comply means fines, and if employers are found to be deliberately stiffing their freelancers, they could face misdemeanor charges. Released in time with the bill was a new report from the Freelancers Union, the organization that lobbies for freelance workers in New York and elsewhere, with the results of a national survey of 5,000 workers giving all the gory details on how often they don't get paid. The report says that one of every two freelancers had trouble getting paid in 2014, and 71% have had trouble getting paid at some point in their career. 81% of those who had trouble this past year were paid late, and 34% of them were not paid at all. Particularly when the checks are relatively small, it's often not worth the trouble to hire a lawyer and pursue a claim, but those small unpaid checks can also add up to a lot. The report says that freelancers lost an average of $5,968 in unpaid wages in 2014, an amount that adds up to 13% of the average respondent's annual income. This is wage theft any way you slice it. The Freelancers Union estimates that nearly 54 million people are freelancers of one sort or another. While for many of them, their freelance work may not be their only source of income, it's still no excuse for rampant under and non-payment. We will keep you posted on the progress of the bill and if any other cities or states move to implement something similar. The Chicago Teachers Union has begun voting to potentially authorize a strike, adding to the monumentally bad week for Mayor Rahm Emanuel, in which he is wading in scandal surrounding the police shooting of Laquan McDonald. The school board is reportedly proposing salary cuts that would amount to a 12% decrease in compensation over a three-year term. And in addition, reports the Washington Post, the school board has also rejected union proposals for smaller class sizes and more librarians, counselors, social workers, and art and music programs, according to the union, along with proposals that would cost little to nothing, such as doing away with redundant testing and giving teachers more autonomy in grading student work. 
basically the typical redundant and wasteful demands uh, such as focusing on actual learning instead of test scores. Chicago Public Schools, meanwhile, has already cut 1,400 jobs and has threatened yet more layoffs, uh, claiming that the budget crisis has made it difficult to uh, maintain staff at its current levels, and they're also criticizing the union's proposals as too costly to achieve. Uh, in the midst of their new wave of fiscal austerity. The union, of course, accuses them of being obstructionist. And after three months of gridlock, the union's vice president, Jesse Sharkey, told the Washington Post, negotiations are stuck in neutral, and it's not clear that anyone on the other side of the table sees any problem with that. I haven't seen evidence of good faith in really trying to grapple with the problem of under-resourcing public schools, the problem of very deep cuts and systematic deficits. We're saying it's time to move this process, and move they did. The voting started on Wednesday, but even if there is ultimately a yes vote, which would require a 75% majority, maybe months before the process for actually undertaking a strike will fully run its course. But just as a reminder, it was three years ago that the week-long strike really brought Chicago public schools to the bargaining table to make major concessions, and now it seems like they're in for another battle with the mayor at a time when he is unique vulnerable. In addition to the police brutality scandal, just a few weeks ago, the school superintendent, Barbara Bird Bennett, pled guilty on corruption charges. And in other Chicago education news, non-tenure track faculty at the University of Chicago have officially voted to form a union. By an 81% majority, contingent faculty, including adjunct and regular professors who are not in tenure track positions, voted to join Service Employees International Union. They joined similar unionization drives at Georgetown Tufts and the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana. Overall, more than 20 states nationwide have seen a surge in adjunct faculty organizing, and this parallels a similar push on private university campuses to form graduate student unions, which we have discussed before on this podcast. A similar campaign to organize adjunct faculty at the nearby Loyola University in Chicago is also underway. Looks like the winter months in the Windy City are going to bring a major sweep for organized labor. About a century ago, a man named Joe Hill became an icon of American labor, helped lead the industrial workers of the world, and eventually became one of the labor movement's earliest martyrs. We spoke with Alexis Buss, editor, along with Philip S. Foner of the centenary edition of the Letters of Joe Hill, 1879-1915, a compilation of letters, poems, and songs recounting his life and his perspectives on labor movement and on the American left as a whole. And we're also presenting some clips from recent performances at the New School and some of Joe Hill's songs. We kicked off the segment with a reading by Hari Kondabolu of one of Hill's letters. November 29th, 1914, Salt Lake County Jail. I'm well aware of the fact that there are lots of prominent rebels who argue that satire and songs are out of place in a labor organization, and I will admit that songs are not necessary for the cause. And whenever I get the hunch, I intend to make some more foolish songs, although I realize that the class struggle is a very serious thing. A pamphlet, no matter how good, is never read more than once, but a song is learned by heart and repeated over and over. And I maintain that if a person can put a few cold common-sense facts into a song and dress them, the facts, 
up in a cloak of humor to take the dryness off of them, he will succeed in reaching a great number of workers who are too unintelligent or too indifferent to read a pamphlet or an editorial on economic science. There is one thing that is necessary in order to hold the old members and to get the would-be members interested in the class struggle, and that is entertainment. The rebels of Sweden have realized that fact, and they have their blowouts regularly every week. And on account of that, they have succeeded in organizing the female workers more extensively than any other nation in the world. The female workers are sadly neglected in the United States, especially on the West Coast. And consequently, we have created a kind of one-legged freakish animal of a union. And our dances and blowouts are kind of stale and unnatural on account of being too much of a buck affair. They are too lacking the life and inspiration which the women alone can produce. The idea is to establish a kind of social feeling of good fellowship between the male and female workers that would give them a little foretaste of our future society and make them more interested in the class struggle and the overthrow of the old system of corruption. I think it would be a very good idea to use our female organizers, Gurley Flynn, for instance, exclusively for the building up of a strong organization among the female workers. They are more exploited than the men, and John Bull is willing to testify to the fact that they are not lacking in militant and revolutionary spirit. By following the example of our Swedish fellow workers and paying a little more attention to entertainment with original song and original stunts and pictures, we shall succeed in attracting and interesting more of the young blood, both male and female, in the one big union. Yours for a change, Joe Hill. To begin, uh, can you give us a very brief history of the international workers of the world and Joe Hill's place in their story? Well, the Industrial Workers of the World was a radical labor union founded in 1905, and it was unique for a lot of reasons, but uh, the most unique feature of it is that unlike AFL unions, the IWW directly challenged capitalism and did not agree that some people were put on earth to be bosses and others to be workers. It the idea of the IWW was the abolition of the wage system and to create a society where workers work to improve the lives of everyone. Joe Hill is one of the most famous members of the IWW, also known as the Police, and he joined sometime around 1910. He was a Swedish immigrant and came to the United States in 1902. Uh, he worked odd jobs all through the United States. Uh, he came into New York and worked his way to the West and uh, joined up with the IWW in Spokane. And he is one of the most famous IWW people and made the IWW famous for its songs. Um, and Joe Hill had a real gift for transforming songs that were popular into songs about struggle. Why is the history of Joe Hill and his story um, relevant for today's labor struggles? We hold Joe Hill in our hearts, especially this year, because this year marks the 100th anniversary of his execution. He was executed after a frame-up trial in Utah in 1915. I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. But all through Joe Hill's life, uh, he was an immigrant who worked 
low-wage, highly exploitative jobs. He witnessed police brutality, and actually one of his first writings um, in the IWW press was a recount of uh, brutality against a migrant worker. Joe Hill also believed that labor needed to use tactics that were not tied to legal protections. Well, at the time, the law offered very little protections to unions, um, but uh, he he was a proponent of on-the-job direct action, just like his union, and um, that is also a very timely concept. You know, we need to we need to take a look back um, and bring these ideas back 100 years later. Um, so Hill was considered a labor radical even in his day. So how did his ideas about specific tactics like the use of the strike or um, more militant strategies, um, how did those sort of buck the status quo um, during his time and what lessons can we learn from that today? Joe Hill certainly, just like the IWW, advocated striking on the job. And the reason that that's an important tactic to consider today is that the labor movement has really come to rely on elections and contracts to build their membership instead of direct action on the job. And I think that can, we have a lot to learn from how organizations like the IWW were built 100 years ago. They did not rely on legal protections. Um, in fact, unions were largely considered an illegal conspiracy. They found ways to strike on the job by slowdowns, by doing a strategy that they called work to rule. So they'd follow the boss's rules to the letter. And as most workers know, that would usually slow down any job if you tried to do that. The IWW also believes in not working on safe machinery. So if there's a machine that kind of works that is dangerous to operate, the workers were encouraged to disable it completely. He wrote a great song about that called Parabungi that actually was going to hip-hop a rap redo by Son of None, a Baltimore rapper. The um, song basically tells a story of a dangerous threshing machine, which is a machine used in agricultural work, and how the workers um, disabled it and then went on to win their demands. Um, and this isn't just a flight of fancy. Um, this was a story based on an actual campaign that the IWW had. Check, check, check. One, one, one. Yo. Had a job once threshing wheat, worked 16 hours, hands and feet. When that moon was shining bright, they kept me working all through the night. One moonlit night, I hate to tell, I accidentally slipped and fell. My pitchfork went right in between some cogwheels of that thresh machine. Ta-ra-ra. 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 Yeah, it made a noise that way And wheels and bolts and hay Went flying every way That stingy rube, he said, well A thousand gone to hell But I did sleep that night, yeah I needed it, all right Next day, that stingy rube did say I'll bring my eggs to town today You grease my wagon up, you mutt And don't forget to screw that nut 
I greased his wagon all right, but I plum forgot to screw that nut. <laughs> and when he started on that trip, the wheel slipped off and he broke his hip, yo. Ta-ra-ra. 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 Yeah, it made a noise that way. <laughs> that room sure was a sight and mad enough to quite and fight, yo. His whiskers and his legs were all full of scrambled eggs. I told him, that's too bad. I'm feeling very sad. That farmer said, you turk, I bet you are, and I won't work. He paid me off right there by gum. So I went home and I told my chum. Next day when the threshing did commence, my chum was Johnny on the fence. On my word, that awkward kid, he dropped his pitchfork like I did. Ta-ra-ra. 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 Yeah, it made a noise that way And part of that machine Hit Ruben on the beam He cried, oh me, oh my I nearly lost my eye My partner said, you're right It's bedtime now, good night But still that rule was real wise These things did open up his eyes He said, there must be something wrong I think I worked my men too long He cut the hours, raised the wage Gave ham and eggs for every day Now, man from the union hall And has no accidents at all, yo Ta-ra-ra 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 Yeah, that rule is feeling gay He learned his lesson real, real quick Just through that simple trick For fixing rotten jobs And fixing greedy slobs Yo, this is the only way Ta-ra-ra 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 Alright, thanks And I guess some some readers might actually be uh, somewhat surprised at how uh, Hill might have taken relatively radical views on issues outside of labor, things like gender roles, militarism, and just international solidarity uh, generally. Uh, can you put that in the context of um, what he was facing in his particular social climate? Um, what were some of the political changes that were taking place in the U.S. and around the world that might have shaped his worldview? Sometimes when we look back 100 years, we, we do look at ideas that Joe Hill and uh, the union he loved put forth and and say, hey, they they were very ahead of their time. So the IWW always had a policy of not just including women, but you know, putting women in the front of their organization. If women workers were organizing, for instance, in a textile factory, the IWW would, you know, ask them to take the same risks as men. Most unions at this time, the turn of the last century, were segregated. The IWW never was. And, you know, this was during a time when Woodrow Wilson was showing the birth of a nation of the nation in the White House, the KKK propaganda film, and talking about how it was the best movie he'd ever seen. So I think what this challenges us to do is not say, oh, they were ahead of their time and weren't they special, but also, you know, who is saying let's maximize the democracy in our society? You know, even now we could look and say who is trying to give the most right to the most people and who isn't? 
um, it's really that simple, <laughs> and um, you'll see the voices emerge. But yeah, the IWW was certainly for maximum democracy, including in the workplace, not just going and pushing a button in a ballot box every every couple of months. Yeah. So most of the letters you mentioned in this collection come from Joe Hill while he was incarcerated in Utah, where he was eventually executed. Um, and you mentioned that he wrote about police brutality and its role in keeping the working class down. Um, so what lessons can we take from Joe Hill's struggle as it relates to today's anti-prison and anti-police brutality movements that are really, you know, grabbing headlines around the country right now with Black Lives Matter? We can see from his letters a movement was that understood the consequences of police brutality was very important to those who served at the hands of police. Um, it knit them together that you know people who are oppressed have a culture and can lift each other up by um, talking about what happened and organizing against it. So Joe Hill was very much a part of propagating that culture, and that, I think, helped give some humanity to people who suffered this way. Do you think Joe Hill, uh, as kind of a, a folk hero of the labor movement, was the first kind of activist martyr of his kind? I, I, I guess there might be some parallels you could draw between his role in labor history and the way he was um, revered and maybe later uh, political um, activists who went on to some kind of martyrdom uh, or uh, became sort of cause celebs like Sacco and Vanzetti or um, maybe even Angela Davis and later generations. Um, was he, was Joe Hill kind of a, a, a sort of blaze the trail there? He, he is certainly um, a venerated labor hero and considered a martyr. He would not have been executed had it not been for his activity in the IWW. But that was also a role that he was not entirely comfortable fulfilling. And he wanted his freedom. Joe Hill even wrote to the secretary treasurer of the IWW um, a famous phrase in the labor movement, don't mourn, organize, to urge that the union not spend a lot of resources first in his legal defense, but also in his remembrance. And he he was really not comfortable with the idea of being a martyr, partly because he wanted to live, of course, but also um, he really wanted people to focus on organizing and not um, not be distracted by what was going on with him. And I mean, of course, the labor movement has so unfortunately had its uh its share of people who were executed or exiled or uh whatever for their beliefs going back to Hannah Market, which of course is the name of the publisher of this book, to bring it all back around. So talking about the songs that you just mentioned, of course we use a, a song for our podcast, the theme song was recorded by fast food workers in Chicago. Can you talk a little bit more about the role of music in the labor movement and how that's changed since sort of Joe Hill's heyday and the, the heyday of these songs that we all still remember? Music was essential um, uh, part of the IWW's organizing. Um, he came to it when there was a practice um, which the IWW called uh, job sharking, 
bosses would contract with employment agencies to provide workers. Actually, that was very common. They would even go um, as far as Sweden or Europe and get immigrant workers uh, to come to the U.S. in the hopes of a job, promised jobs. But, you know, if they, if a boss needed uh, 35 workers to work a construction job, the employment agency would find 300 and send them um, usually by, they'd say, go freight hopping and uh, get to the job. And then they'd find out not only was there not enough work for everyone, but all of a sudden the rate of pay had gone down. Um, so when Choho joined the IWW, um, the IWW had decided that it was pointless to go to these jobs where uh, you effectively had um, 10 times as many people vying for work as there was work. They were going to take their organizing outside of the employment agencies. So they relied on street actions outside of these employment agencies. And this became um, a free speech fight, which um, the authorities would almost always try to get the IWW off the streets. Um, people who were allowed to stay on the streets were, for instance, the Salvation Army. And the Salvation Army would have a little band with them usually. And Joe Hill would take the songs that the Salvation Army um, was playing and rewrite the words to be about organizing. Um, so it it wasn't just we like to sing a song, but it was a way to, on the one hand, drown out the competition for you know the attention of people on the street, but also uh, a, a great way to draw attention to their um, their action. Um, so that's what it grew out of. There had been before the IWW uh, an idea of uh, labor songs, and they they were kind of a different tone, um, more floral and more kind of designed to uplift workers, uh, maybe even a few steps ahead of where a lot of people were at. Um, but Joe Hill would take um, kind of popular songs like, you know, these Salvation Army songs, you know, hymns or um, Tin Pan Alley songs or even vaudeville songs and redo them um, to be about organizing. So in terms of uh, that's relevant today. Well, I think, you know, 100 years ago, people were maybe a little bit more used to group singing than they are now. But I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any significant labor rally that did not have a musical component. Um, and some of these anthems still connect us to our past as a movement and are certainly sung today. Another anniversary this year is the anniversary of the writing of Solidarity Forever. That wasn't a Joe Hill song, but he certainly knew it, and um, I think it's the most sung song in the United States uh, for. Do you have a favorite of Joe Hill songs, and, and can you tell us why it speaks to you the way it does? Um, I would say The Tramp is probably my favorite. First of all, I have an eight-year-old daughter, so we enjoy singing it. It's incredibly catchy. Um, <laughs> but I I really like that Joe Hill has taken – a kind of hard luck situation and made it empowering. And that's the theme throughout all the songs. So I think that song is especially successful. Bucky Hawker, a Chicago singer, uh, released a tribute album this year, Anywhere But Utah, um, 
which is all Joe Hill songs. And this is his recording of A Tramp by Joe Hill. I will tell you about a chap that was broken up against it too for fair. He was not the kind of shirt. He was looking hard for work. But he heard that same old story everywhere. It was tramp, 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 keep on tramping. Gets you around again. You will wear that ball and chain. Keep on tramping. That's the best thing you can do. He walked up and down the street till his shoes fell off his feet. In a house, he spied a lady cooking stew. He said, How do you do? May I chop some wood for you But what the lady told him Made him feel so blue Tramp, tramp, tramp Keep on tramping There's nothing Doing here for you If I catch you around again You will wear that ball and chain Keep on tramping, that's the best that you can do. Across the street, the sign he read, worked for Jesus, so it said. And he said, here is my chance, I'll surely try. Well, he knelt down on the floor, till his knees got rather sore. But at eating time he heard that preacher say Tramp, 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 keep on tramping There's nothing doing here for you If I catch you around again You will wear the ball and chain So keep on tramping the best thing you can do Down the street he met a cop And that copper made him stop And he asked him when did you blow into town Come with me up to the judge But that judge just said oh fudge Bums that have no money they need him come around That's the best thing you can do Finally came that happy day When his life did pass away He was sure he'd go to heaven when he died When he reached that pearly gate 
escape. Slammed the door right in his face and he loudly cried. Now he's hitting a tramp, 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 keep on tramping. Cause there's nothing doing here for you. And if I catch you round again, you will wear that ball and chain. So keep on tramping now, that's the best thing. Just a bow. He said, the tramp, 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 keep on a tramping. Cause there's nothing doing here for you. And if I catch you round again, you will wear that ball and chain. So keep on tramping, that's the best thing. As an archivist and an activist, um, what challenges did you face in working with this material and trying to frame it in a new way for a contemporary audience? And can you talk about some of the sort of uh, archival work that you did trying to unearth this material and repackage it? The collection that we just released was actually an update of a collection that um, Dr. Philip Foner, the famous uh, labor historian did on the 50th anniversary of Joe Hill's execution in 1965. And really, the credit goes to him in terms of uh, finding the letters of Joe Hill. Um, he mostly did it through personal contacts. Um, 50 years out, he was finding, if not people who directly received letters from Joe Hill you know, in their old age, um, he was finding relatives of theirs and sitting with them and going through the letters. Now, of course, I have the benefit of Google and archive indexes and so on. But I believe, I think one of the frustrations is um, it's pretty clear Joe Hill wrote a significant um, amount of letters that we just don't have. Um, maybe they'll surface one day and as relatives realize their significance and contribute them to archives. But the material that I was able to add, I added with the help of um, archivists who had collected um, the material since 1965. Thank you. 
you have freedom from wage slavery, then join in the industrial grand. Would you from misery and hunger be free? Then do your share like a man. There is power, there is power in a band of working men when they stand hand in hand. There is power, there is power that must spread through all the land. One industrial union grand. Would you have mansions of gold? In the sky, live in a shack way in the back. Would you have wings up in heaven to fly and starve here with rags on your back? There is power, there is power in a band of working men. When they stand hand in hand, there is power, there is power that must rule in every land. One industrial union grand. If you like sluggers to beat off your head, then don't organize. All unions despise. If for a, you are nothing more, before you are dead, shake hands with your boss and look so goddamn wise. There is power, there is power in a band of working men when they stand hand in hand. There is power, there is power that must rule in every land. One industrial union grand. So come all ye workers from every land. Come join in the grand industrial band. Then we are share of this earth we shall demand. Do your share like a man. There is power, there is power that must rule in every land. One industrial union grand. There is power, there is power in a band of working men. One industrial. Union Grand. That was friend of the show, Jamie Kilstein, performing Joe Hill's There Is Power in a Union. Before that, you heard Alexis Buss talking about the new collection of Joe Hill's letters and songs that she edited, which is available now from Haymarket Books. We will put links at the Descent website, as well as the full video clip of the performance from which these songs were taken. And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment. Arg! I wish I'd written that.
The piece I wished I'd written this week was written by another friend of the show and former belabored guest, Melissa Gira-Grant, at The Guardian. It is titled, How Stoya Took on James Dean and Broke the Porn Industry's Silence. Adult film star Stoya recently came forward with the allegation that James Dean, another porn performer and her former boyfriend, had raped her. In the wake of her statement, several other women have also come forward with similar stories, and the internet has been aflutter with think pieces about male feminists, pornography, and consent. But Melissa, author of Playing the Whore, the Work of Sex Work, which you can hear all about on Belabored episode 44, looks at the issue in the context of labor, a labor that is devalued and stigmatized by society and allows sex workers to be easy targets. She also has an exclusive interview with Stoya, who talks about the way her own labor is misunderstood and used to blame her for the assault she faced, as well as other workers in the industry who talk about the way their working conditions lead to cover-ups of abuse. She writes, quote, Those critics looking for something to blame in the porn industry for a culture of silence around rape will need to look past the porn. When performers are fearful or hesitant to discuss sexual assault, porn performer and director Toby Hillmeyer said, I'd say the big dynamics fueling that are that porn performers are contractors, like other workers in many fields living from gig to gig. For porn performers, Hillmeyer said, your payment is not based on the work you do, but on how well you monetize the work you do, and being able to sell yourself means public perception is super important. Anyone working in the industry is going to be very aware of that, end quote. The story is hard to read, must have been harder to write, and harder still, of course, to live through. It's important to remember that in many industries, not just the one where sex is part of the job, workers face the threat of sexual violence, and such threats are possible because of workers' lack of power. It is hard enough to come forward about sexual assault, but it's harder still when it might cost you your job and your livelihood. My pick for ARG is called Uber on the Road to Nowhere by Stephen Greenhouse in The American Prospect. Greenhouse does a deep dive exploring Uber as an economic and a pop cultural phenomenon, the way it twists and distorts the employee-employer relationship into a perfect marketing ploy, giving people all the obligations and restrictions of working for the man and none of the freedom and autonomy that they are told that these people have when they become so-called independent contractors. So Uber basically says we are all deep down self-driven entrepreneurs waiting to break out and their app is the vessel by which we should do this even though the conditions that the app imposes on workers ultimately amount to basically the same daily slog as ordinary wage work and in many ways the work is even more precarious than a regular job uh, you do not have uh, insurance, don't have workers' compensation, don't have legal recourse. If something bad happens to you as an Uber driver, you are basically screwed. Greenhouse looks closely at some of the legal obstacles that so many Uber drivers and other rideshare drivers have faced in trying to hold these companies accountable as employers. Basically, they are considered non-employees under the law and therefore um, excluded from many of the protections of the National Labor Relations Act and will have a very difficult time unionizing. But Greenhouse does look at various creative efforts that rideshare drivers are using to form union-like structures. Some in Seattle are organizing with the Teamsters to form their own union of sorts. They're hoping to get around some of the antitrust restrictions that constrain so-called independent contractors from becoming full-fledged unions. And you can be sure that Uber and Lyft will sue their pants off, basically. 
But uh, he also goes into the social and cultural psychology surrounding Uber and how it evokes fear as well as wrath among different segments of society, um, along with admiration and enthusiasm from investors and politicians alike. Um, he writes, quote, The company sees and depicts itself as offering a cool new flexible employment model that is being copied by other companies, including Lyft, Handy, that's for house cleaning, Caviar for food delivery, Postmates, on-demand delivery, Washio for dry cleaning, and Lux for parking your car. To many, however, Uber has become the foremost symbol of something else, something unlawful. Many labor advocates view Uber as the leading practitioner of legal worker misclassification because it insists that its 400,000 U.S. drivers are independent contractors rather than employees. Unquote. So, is Uber the future? Greenhouse notes that the particular brand of exploitation wielded by these uh, so-called sharing economy apps is in many ways surprisingly old-fashioned and not quite as innovative as they claim to be. Everyone can agree that uh, Uber's employment model is very different and less structured and decentralized than old-school companies like uh, IBM or General Motors, but um, whereas proponents see this as a reason to do away with existing labor regulations and cast them off as slotic bureaucracies that simply hinder innovation, uh, by contrast, uh, Greenhouse writes that, quote, labor advocates often argue that the nation's employment laws are not outmoded and that the problem is that many people simply fail to recognize that Uber has a fairly traditional employer-employee relationship. So Uber is wielding these wizard-like powers to regalus with the lofty promises of the sharing economy. But we, before we all start talking about living in a post-work world, Greenhouse reminds us that uh, there are many campaigns around the country seeking to remind the public that Uber's business model is uh, not only traditional, but incredibly regressive in many ways. Often the opposition is led by labor leaders and traditional taxi drivers, such as the T New York Taxi Workers Alliance, but now the rideshare drivers themselves are trying to disrupt their quasi-employer relationships. Um, of course, there's also the predictable counterplay coming from the pro-Uber side as they organize their own campaigns to supposedly improve rights for these so-called independent workers. They came up with something called the Common Ground Statement, they set out a whole bunch of principles outlining things like portable benefits so that benefits could be accrued by workers without ever having to tie them to a specific employer. But Greenhouse notes that these statements were so vague as to be basically meaningless. So while the fate of organizing is unclear, so is the fate of uh, labor law under the uh, rising rideshare hegemony. Nonetheless, as Uber driver turned activist Takale Gobena told Greenhouse, quote, Uber doesn't see us. They tell us what to do. They don't hear our concerns. When we have a union, we'll have the power to negotiate. Right now, we have no way to solve our problems. So far, the sharing economy, for all its promises of being faster, newer, and smarter than everything that came before it, remains still too dumb to solve this basic dilemma of giving workers what they need. And thanks for tuning in to another episode of Belabored. You can catch us on Twitter at hashtag Belabored, or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Feel free to send us questions, comments, story ideas, any gripes you have about your boss, any labor history heroes you want us to highlight, any cool songs you've recently written, etc. And we leave you now with another one of Joe Hill's songs. This is a rendition of Rebel Girl, performed by the Magpies. <laughs> Thank you.
everyone knows. Some are living in beautiful mansions. Some are wearing the finest of clothes. There are blue-blooded queens and princesses who have charms made of diamonds and pearls. But the only and thoroughbred lady is the rebel girl. That's the rebel girl. That's the rebel girl. To the working class, she's a precious girl. She brings courage, pride, and joy to the fighting rebel boy. We have girls before, but we need some more in the industrial Very fine, but a heart in her bosom is beating. That is true to her class and her kind. And the grafters in terror are trembling when her spite and defiance she'll hurl. For the only and thoroughbred lady is the rebel girl. That's a rebel girl. That's a rebel. Done. 